As we're jumping into the series, I've been really looking forward to this, uh, partly because every single one of us, no matter what you believe about God or about church or faith, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're single, every single one of us is navigating our family of origin for the good or for the bad uh, from the day that we're born. And for many of us, we're navigating the family that we married into because if you've gotten married, you've discovered you don't just marry an individual, you marry a family. And uh, one of the things that we share in common is we look to the future, whether you're single or whether you're married, as you think about family in the future, your existing family or the potential for family in the future, you're hoping to experience or offer a version of family that is at least slightly better than the one that you grew up in. And today begins the conversation of what we learn from Jesus, what we learn from the New Testament to help us just do, to do just that. My parents divorced when I was eight. They both eventually remarried. I had a stepfather who 12 years into it called it quits. And then he bullied his half of the family who had become my family over a period of 12, 13 years to cut my wife and myself off and not even speak to us. In fact, threatened his daughter that if she contacted who has been my stepsister, he wouldn't pay her way through college. It was just an ugly deal. And then my wife and I, when Shauna, uh, Shauna and I met, and during our first year together, her and her, uh, her mom and dad went through an ugly divorce. Our parents each married other people. So we have half-siblings, step-siblings, ex-siblings, siblings who have divorced, remarried. And so holidays and big events those are a lot of fun. Uh, we've been, as, I mean, they've all been at some level messy or awkward or uncomfortable. For some, there are still open wounds. There's still animosity. So, in fact, I, I just want to do a little social test. Okay, this, so this is for you to engage. If you would agree that your family is at least at times or with certain members of your family complicated and messy, would you raise your hand? All right, so just look around. So you are not alone. You are not weird. We're in this together. And then you factor in that just within this room, or for those of you joining us online, that our experiences are so diverse. Some of us, some of us, are you, some of you are in blended families. Some of you are in more traditional families. Some of you are in a second marriage. Some of you are in between marriages. Uh, some of you are raising kids. Some of you are raising someone else's kids. You're a step-parent or you're, uh, you've adopted, or you have foster kids in your homes. Some of you, some of you have lost a parent due to abandonment or death. And family right now in 2022, it is so challenging. And when it comes to family, we all really just have three things in common. The first is that they're all messy and complicated. Another is that when it comes to our family of origin, we didn't have any choice in the matter, right? Like you can pick your friends, you can't pick your family. But for most of us, when you're about middle school, if you could have picked anyone's family to be your family, you would have picked your friend's family, right? Like, remember that family? Like, I want to live with them. That's a family. Like, they don't have rules. Like, my parents have rules. My friend's parents let them watch whatever they want. They play video games with no limits. They get them whatever they want. They don't have to clean up their rooms. Their dad, he is just always so fun and awesome. Their mom is so chill and funny. Like, remember that family? You just thought, like, I just wish my family were more like that family, because family is difficult. I mean, think of this. The word father is not an emotionally neutral term. The word mother is not an emotionally neutral term. Brother, sister, whenever you hear those words, you think about your family, and there is emotion connected to those relationships, good, 
bad, ugly. There's background. There's chaos. There may be joy. There's happiness. There's pain. There's some great memories. There's not so great memories. And for some of you, you have memories that are so traumatic that you have worked to block them or they have been blocked entirely from your mind. So it's a challenging subject. The other thing that we have in common is no one you're related to is as smart as you are, right? Like at some point you've thought this. You just thought like, listen, if everybody would just let me call the shots in this family, everything would be better. For sure my life would be better. For, for most of us, again, this began about middle or high school, right? It's like if my dad would just or my mom would just, if my siblings would just, I mean, just gather this family, give me a microphone, make everybody sit down and shut up for 20 minutes, I will straighten this whole family out, right? Like, okay, you need to take a bath. You need to be nicer. You need to quit drinking so much. You, you need to go back to school. You need to quit nagging so much. You need to get your anger under control. But then in other stages of life, it's the opposite. It's like so many times, especially early in our marriage when I was raising kids, I would find myself thinking, I am so inadequate. Who gave me these humans to raise? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I should know how to respond better. I feel like I don't have any answers at all. And as parents, we all eventually get there. When your kids are little, you know everything. The older they get, the less you know. Like some years ago, I was on staff at a large church in Chicago, and we had a nationally recognized couple coming in to talk about, to speak on parenting. And a staff person, a fellow staff person asked, asked say, said, hey, are you and Shauna coming? I said, no. And she looked at me surprised. She's like, well, why not? And I said, because... Their kids are all under the age of 10. When my kids were that age, I was an expert too. <laughs> then you, you open the Bible and go, okay, well, what does it say about, what can I learn about like a family? And there are almost no good examples. In fact, in the big, big mega narratives about family, every one of them is a mess. I mean, think about how it all began with the, the narrative of uh, uh, Adam and Eve. They've got everything they want. They're in the perfect environment. And you look at this and you go, well, God, Adam chose Eve over God. John Eldridge once wrote, in the Garden of Eden, man chose woman over God, and men have been choosing women over God ever since. And there's a lot of uncomfortable truth to that. The first recorded homicide in history, two brothers, Adam and Eve's sons, one kills the other, the first civil war. In the nation of Israel was David and his son going to war with one another. And several thousands of people were maimed or killed because of a father-son conflict. So again, the Old Testament is basically just full of a lot of bad examples. Then you get to the New Testament, and even Joseph and Mary are a mess. It's like, jo Joseph, um, I'm pregnant. God's the dad. Or years later, like they've been traveling like a full day. They've left Jerusalem. Hey, have you seen Jesus? No. Have you? I'm, have you seen him? Jesus was 12. They left him at the temple. I mean, they didn't find him for another three days. I mean, imagine that conversation with God. Like, a God, so your son, savior of humanity. Okay, we lost him, all right? Just a, they, and they only had one kid to be responsible for at that point. And they just lost him. And then Jesus, he's an adult, and his brothers, we, they were convinced 
He was out of his mind. So even Jesus' family was a mess. And I've heard people say, you know, we need to get back to a biblical marriage or a biblical family. I'm like, okay, which one? Like the one where your husband throws you under the bus with God, and then one of your sons kills the other, or the one where your husband forces you as his wife to tell everyone you're his sister, or the one where your favorite wife can't get along with your other wife because they're sisters, because I'm just telling you there are no good examples. But the good news is that though there are no good examples of family in the Old or the New Testament, something profound happens after the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who overnight went from trying to destroy the Jesus movement to become its greatest spreader and advocate, because that's what you do when you get confronted by a man dead and buried and meet him alive again. Paul began to take the teachings of Jesus into this Greek and this Roman culture around the Mediterranean rim, and he began to insert these ideas in, about how family was to work. And you need to understand this, and I cannot overstate this, of how foreign these ideas were. No one, no one operated this way. This had never been tried or tested. There had never been a culture or a society built around the things that he began to teach, which was a direct reflection of what Jesus taught about the value of men, women, and children. And in a minute, I'm going to read quickly an overview of everything that the New Testament has to say about family. And you're going to listen, and you're going to think, like, I've kind of heard this before, or this just seems so old-fashioned. This is something my grandparents or my great-grandparents would have bought into. But in an enlightened 21st century Western culture, they just sound so outdated. And yet at the same time, there's elements of this we've just kind of grown up to expect. And the reason is because of how deeply the teachings of Jesus have influenced the foundation of our country and our culture from its inception. But in Paul's time and culture, you've got to understand, women and children had just a little more value than cattle. Jesus and Paul elevated the status of women and children sky high, and the idea that women and children had the same value as men was completely unheard of. In fact, here's a side note, and if you don't believe me, fact check me. Google is your friend. In every culture since that has embraced a biblical worldview, a, set of, a Christian set of standards, women and children have fared better. It's a fact. What's also a fact is, in every culture that has either moved away from or failed to embrace a Christian worldview or a Christian set of standards, women and children have always suffered. Today, in over 60 different countries, there are groups of women from a different religion who are fighting like crazy to have many of, the, many of the rights that you women in the United States of America experience. And they are having to fight against the tenets of their religion. Whereas when it comes to the New Testament, a Christian worldview, the New Testament opened the door for women and children to have value and dignity in a way that no other culture had done. So where and when the Apostle Paul says these kinds of things that I'm about to read to you, this was just utterly foreign and disruptive and disconcerting, especially to some men, but it gave women and children hope. And the basis of everything he would say is that when Jesus died of the cross, he died for all men, all women, all children equally. And before I read, I just have to say a word of warning. That as our nation moves further and further away from a biblical worldview, the group that will suffer most 
will be women and children. In a segment of society that has already abandoned marriage, and especially the Jesus-based version of marriage and family that we're going to learn about, the group that is thrust below the poverty line the quickest are women and children. It's a historical fact. And 2,000 years ago, Paul, he took the implications of Jesus' teachings and said, in light of what Jesus has taught and what's at stake, here's how family should work. And so here, here's the summary. In one of Paul's letters, he writes to a church in Ephesus, children, now we parents, we like this one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. In a letter, another letter, Paul writes, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Time out. You do not know my husband. Paul's like, I'm not finished. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Now, why would he say this? Because men in that culture, they were harsh with their dog, they were harsh with their horse, they were harsh with their wife because she wasn't much more valuable than an animal. Paul says, that's over. We're not doing it that way anymore. She is priceless royalty in the eyes of God. You are to love her, not take advantage of her, or look for an opportunity to trade her in or upgrade. You are to love your wife. Don't be harsh. This was new. This elevated the status of women. He also writes, fathers, Do not embitter or exasperate your children, or they will become discouraged. As a father, this is probably one of the New Testament teachings I feel I violated the most as my kids were growing up, and I hate it. And it was always unintentional. It was always in an attempt to say the right thing, or to correct them well, or to guide them, or to teach them, and sometimes I just did it so wrong. Exasperate or embitter means you say things to your kids, and maybe meaning to be helpful or corrective or positive or trying to discipline them for their good or encourage them or contrasting their behavior with someone else's behavior, which is always a win. And without meaning to, you just, you frustrate them and you place a weight on them. And you, you might argue, but I'm just telling them the truth. I'm just addressing something that they knew need to do differently. And there's a weight to your words and without meaning to, at times it can be more harmful than helpful and it just causes them to be discouraged. And some of you growing up, you experienced this. So you know what I'm talking about. And as parents or future parents, for those of you that will someday maybe have children, here's something you need to know. Women, moms, your words weigh about 25 pounds. Dads, your words weigh about 500 pounds. Those of you who have raised children... You know what I'm talking about. When we were raising our sons, my wife would get so frustrated because she would say something to our boys and maybe get some pushback or attitude or a big hairy argument where I would say something and they would just do it. And then she'd be mad at me. Like, how's that fair? But as parents, like we all speak words to our children and and sometimes they're hard words. And see, men can say the same thing that a woman can say. A father can say the same thing that a mother can say. And it just feels different. All of us had parents, so we know this to be true. There's just there's something extra weighty when it comes to words spoken to us by a father. Father wounds carry extra weight. Words spoken to us by our fathers, and for some of us, words that were never spoken to us by our father because our father was absent. 
And Paul, the amazing thing is, 2,000 years ago, Paul understood this. So, and notice, he doesn't say, women, don't exasperate your children. He says, fathers. Because he's like, men, I know your tendency. Our, your tendency is to power up, to treat your children like servants, like someone you own, or like animals. No more. Jesus said, hey, the children get to come to the front of the line. They put them on the front row. Fathers, be careful in how you speak to your children. And I have so many bad parenting examples that I could give. I just, where I just wish, I wish I could just go back and retake and unsay some words that I said to one of my sons or the other. And in almost every case, the words may have been true, but they just crushed the spirit of one of my children. But the good news is because Jesus and Paul gives us handlebars. It gave me handlebars as a dad and how to relate to my children. There were also countless times that God helped me to check my words before I let them out of my mouth and kept me from saying things that would have just unnecessarily wounded them. And in those moments that I failed, that he gave me the handlebars to know how to handle it, to humble myself, to own it, and to to seek their forgiveness, and then do better the next time around. That's why I want you to spend regular, intentional time, in the new, especially in the New Testament, because this is all in here. There, here's another. This is from Peter, who hung out with Jesus. Jesus. Peter had a wife, and he was trying to figure out how does what Jesus taught work in family. And he writes, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. And again, we think, well, that's just common sense. Not in the first century it wasn't. Not in this culture, it wasn't. In other words, take into consideration how your wife is feeling, to which they would have pushed back and said, why? Like this wife that I didn't even choose? The wife that my parents bartered for because their best friends had three daughters? Like I came to the breakfast table one morning, they're like, hey, bye, just so you know, that's who you're going to marry in about six years. And she was the middle child. No one wants to marry the middle child, but, she gave, but they gave us a cow And so now I have to marry her. Like, I have to be considerate of her? Peter says, yes. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and his heirs. Well, what's he talking about? Well, first off, again, ladies, before you push back, basically all he's saying is that in an arm wrestling contest, most of us can beat our wives. Not all of us, okay? But most of us, okay? So we might be stronger. And, and, and here's the other thing. In that culture, that's still true to some degree in our culture, we know this, and that is that somehow as men, we, we, we have just been able to be in positions of power and influence because we're physically bigger or we've got that testosterone-driven challenge, whatever it is. But, but throughout history, and he's saying, you, you use that for her benefit. Physically, statistically, men are bigger and stronger. Testosterone gives us added strength. But you're to never see a woman as lesser than because of that or somehow think that you're superior. In fact, according to Jesus and Peter, you're to take your size and your strength and your ability to have influence and you are to always leverage that for her benefit. He's talking about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, He died for your wife. You have a heavenly Father She has a heavenly father, same heavenly father. So treat her as equal heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And men, that should get our attention. How you treat your wife will somehow have a direct impact on how seriously her heavenly father takes your prayers. So here it is all put together in summary. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't irritate your children. That's it. Got it? Go do those things. Let's pray and go beat the Baptists at the restaurants. <laughs> See, here's the tension. And this is going to be the tension of everything that we talk about over the next few weeks. I, I hope, and this is why I hope that you'll join us, that you'll invite friends to come sit with you every week. Because what nearly all of us share in common, including those people closest to you, is that we want to do family better than what we experienced. Because you don't come from an ideal family. And if you're married and you have kids, you've not created an ideal family. It may be more ideal than the one that you came from, but it may also be less. But there's real, and there's ideal. And there's a gap. And that, that is what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks. And here's the thing that Jesus did over and over and over again. Jesus taught and he pointed to an ideal, yet he refused to condemn those that fell short. In fact, in every situation, Jesus raised the current standard. I mean, think of it. The the standard in the first century Judaism was that it was against the law, Moses' law, to commit adultery. And everybody knew what adultery was. You take your body and you commit adultery with another body. That's adultery. Jesus said, actually, the standard is higher than that. If you even look at a woman, you look at another person lustfully, you've committed adultery. Which meant that in that moment, Jesus made an adulterer for sure of every man and potentially every woman in his audience. To which we'd say, but okay, Jesus, what's going to happen to those of us that commit adultery in our hearts? Jesus say, well, I'm going to forgive you. Really? Yeah. Well, which is it? It's both. The standard got higher. The grace went deeper. That was how Jesus functioned. This is what throws people off because it's in our nature. We want to go to one extreme or the other. Either all grace or all truth, but Jesus was the embodiment of both. Full of grace and full of truth. He taught and he pointed to an ideal, but then he refused to condemn those who fell short. And there's a tension there. And the decision that we have to make, especially as we go through this over the next few weeks, is are we willing to embrace an ideal that, we may, never beco- that may never become a reality in our current family? Or will we just choose to abandon the ideal to feel better about where we actually are? Are we willing to embrace an ideal as it comes to a family, knowing that we may never fully live up to it? And for some of us, it's too late to even live up to it. Or will we do the easy thing and just decide, I'm just going to abandon the ideal and just declare that what is true of me is normal? The most profound illustration of this in Jesus' ministry, it had to do with family relationships and dynamics, and it reveals a tension that is so emotional for many of us. Some Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, to test him. They weren't there to learn. They asked, is it lawful, as in the law of Moses, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, you need to understand that they had a version of no-fault divorce that you can't even imagine. Here is how no-fault divorce worked in the first century in this Jewish community. If a man didn't want to be married to his wife anymore, he just had to go to her and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And that was it. No attorneys, no fees, no depositions, no juries, no taking statements. I divorce you, I divorce you. I divorce you, and she had to pack up and leave. 
she had no legal recourse. If a woman wanted to divorce her husband, no matter how horrible or abusive he was, too bad. She was just stuck. She couldn't get out of a marriage. Even in this Jewish culture, a woman had no rights at all. She was just stuck. But Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, to these well-read men an insult. And this is the most important part as it relates to our discussion, that at the beginning, Jesus says, let me take you back to the beginning, when things were perfect, where things were ideal, when things were just the way that God wanted them to be. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a father will leave his father, or a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, and there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek to this, what God has joined together, let no one, including Moses, separate. Jesus takes them all the way back to the beginning and says, okay, you don't even understand what marriage is. See, God made these two people one. And when they got married, they become one. And you're trying to unone what God made one, and you just can't. It's impossible. And they said, what? Jesus said, listen, you're looking at the real. You've lost sight of the ideal. I'm comfortable bringing both to you. I understand that at times things don't work out. I understand people get divorced. I understand that there's got to be a mechanism in place to protect women from men. But I'm not going to lose sight of the fact that in the beginning, this was never part of the plan. In the beginning, God created marriage and he created marriage and sex in such a way that two people become one and you cannot unone what God has made one. Well, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They said, well, then why did Moses come up with this divorce thing? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. And this teaching is very uncomfortable. Like, what do we do with this? And Jesus says, you've got to live in that tension. Okay, but Jesus, what are you going to do with all these, what are you going to do to all these divorced people? I'm not going to do anything to them. I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to die for them. I'm going to give my life for them. But Jesus, it sounds like you're just letting us off. So which is it? Is it a rule or is it not a rule? Yes. See, there's a tension. And as we go through this series, we're going to look at some other examples. But this is where it lands for us today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're still trying to make up your mind, you push back on the whole Bible thing, like what happened to dinosaurs and why do bad things happen to good people? Like, I get that. We created this place with you in mind. And you may have ample reason to never become a Christian, but I promise you, I promise you, moving forward over the next few weeks, there are going to be some things that are going to be very, very practical that you can leave here and you can just apply before you do anything or believe anything differently about God or the Bible or anything else. But if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is more than just inviting you and me. He's instructing us. He's instructing you and I to follow him into the complexity of family life and to carry the tension between what is real in my life and my family and this ideal that seems like very few people can ever actually embrace or attain. So the question is, are we willing to embrace Jesus' sense of ideal and say based on what Jesus taught and Peter and Paul explained on that, that this is what an ideal family looks like, that even though I might never attain it, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to take my eye off of that North Star 
is my guide as it relates to family? Or am I just going to change the rules and manipulate words and manipulate truth so that I feel better about me and where I am? And see, as a follower of Jesus, we don't have the permission, the margin, or the luxury of dismissing what just seems so archaic and like my great-grandparents' version of family. See, the problem is, is if you follow Jesus from time to time, you're going to feel uncomfortable about your current reality. And that's okay. There's a healthy tension. And I suspect when I read those words about divorce, some of you tensed up and maybe even got stuck there. Maybe you felt condemned. I want to invite the band on up to close with the song that we started with because I feel like the words of the song are a reminder of what God really offers us. See, here's the thing. I've never met a divorced man or a divorced woman who wants divorce for their children. Have you? In fact, men and women who have faced the pain, the loneliness, the despair, the emotional desolation, the hopelessness of divorce, they're the ones that most want a successful marriage for their children, more than anyone else. And regardless of your view of Scripture or how the world is or where the world is heading or every single man or woman who has faced the pain of divorce wants better for their children. Which means that no matter what you believe about God, Jesus, or the Bible, there's something in you that refuses to lose sight of the, de- of the, of the ideal when it comes to your kids or grandkids, your nieces or nephews. I've never talked to a single parent who ever wishes for either their sons or their daughters, to one day be in a situation where they are single parents. No, they want something better. Every parent or grandparent wants something better for their kids or grandkids. So we dare not lose sight of the ideal because Jesus in his amazing grace and mercy invites us in the 21st century to re-embrace some first century values that I'm just telling you change the world. So as we go forward, some of what we're going to talk about is going to be so practical. Again, you need to invite your friends, and you and they are going to be able to go home and start implementing some of this immediately. Some of what we're going to talk about, you're going to go like me. Man, I wish I would have heard this years ago. But you know what? For all of us, there's grace. And all of this, there's forgiveness. And doing all that we can to discover and understand the ideal has never been more important. Because our future, the future of families, the future of the next generation is what's at stake. Let me pray for us. Father, I I pray that you would help every one of us wherever this lands. I know there are people listening to my voice right now that there are elements in their family that are so complicated and maybe so painful. And for others of us, Father, in some ways it feels like things are are going pretty good, but the question is how do we impact the next generation and help things to be even better for them? So, Father, as we lean into your word, as we lean into Jesus' teachings, as we lean into Paul and Peter and all that we learn, I pray that you would truly give us ears to hear and a mind that will receive and a heart that's just willing to submit to the truth, to some hard truths so that ultimately things can get better for our future family. Father, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.